Assalamu alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Muttaki Ismail. This is a bonus episode filling in the space between Season 7 and Season 8. Just a fair warning, this episode may not be for young ears. There's some parts in here that parents may have a difficult time explaining. I'll leave it at that. So we are continuing our brief series on Vikings and Muslims. And today we'll be talking about the Risala of Ibn Fadlan, where he describes his experience with a group of Vikings. Now, speaking of medieval Muslims, I recently listened to a podcast about a Muslim woman named Saida Al-Hurra on a podcast called the Vulgar History Podcast. Saida Al-Hurra was a very interesting individual. She was both a queen and a pirate. Now, I don't want to spoil the story for you. I don't want to tell you everything, but you can listen and learn more about Saida Al-Hurra at the Vulgar History Podcast. And there are other stories, other podcasts on that podcast, other stories about other Muslim women on that podcast as well. A little bit of house cleaning before we get into the show. This episode is brought to you by Islamic History Exclusive. That is our premium podcast. We have four seasons so far discussing things such as the struggle between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and two seasons of the Umayyad Caliphate. The most recent episode, our most recent episode, discussed the Umayyad invasion of Sindh, which is in southern Pakistan. So if the Islamic History Podcast is not enough, or if you want to just support the Islamic History Podcast, or if you just want to hear more Islamic history during this blessed month of Ramadan, you can join by opening up the Apple Podcast or the Spotify app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you don't use either of those apps, you can also join by visiting our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Islamic History or you can simply go to islamichistoryexclusive.com. Multiple ways for you to join our premium podcast, Islamic History Exclusive. And one last item, this episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad podcast. This is a free podcast, completely free, free 99, free podcast chronicling the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Allah's last messenger. It is available on all platforms. I did it myself. It took me several years to do it, but it is available to you and everyone who cares to look for it completely 100% free. Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, whatever your jam is, whatever you like to listen to podcasts, just look for the Prophet Muhammad podcast and you'll get it. All right, now let's get into the show. This is about this episode is about Ibn Fadlan's Risala. In our last episode, we discussed Ibn Ghazal and his remarks and his uh, story about encountering the Vikings. It was most likely in Ireland, but it could have been in Denmark, but we kind of lean towards Ireland. Hope you remember that. Well, this is about Ibn Fadlan. This story is very interesting and there's a lot of history here that I want to cover before we actually even get into Ibn Fadlan's Risala itself, so let's just go ahead and get right into it. So Ibn Fadlan's Risala chronicles the journey of a man named Ahmed Ibn Fadlan as he traveled from Baghdad to Volga, Bulgaria in the year 922 CE. Ibn Fadlan was part of an embassy, part of a diplomatic mission sent by the Abbasid Caliph 
and we'll discuss the Abbasid Caliph in a moment, sent by the Abbasid Caliph to the Volga Bulgarians. The Volga Bulgarians had recently converted to Islam and had asked the Caliph to send them some teachers to teach them about Islam. This Risala that Ahmed ibn Fadlan wrote, it is about his entire journey, which covers much more than just this period of time where he encountered these Vikings, but that's what we're going to talk about. The most interesting part, well, the part that we are most interested in about this Risala is Ibn Fadlan's description of the Vikings that he met in Volga, Bulgaria. Now, the people of Volga, Bulgaria were not Vikings. We'll discuss them in a moment, but just want you to know that Ibn Fadlan did not actually travel to Viking territory. He actually traveled to Volga, Bulgaria, which is now part of Russia near the Caspian Sea. Ibn Rozal, whom we discussed in our last episode, he actually traveled to Viking territory. This is a different situation. Ibn Fadlan traveled to the Volga Bulgarian territory and he met some Vikings who were later known as Varangians who were traveling along the Volga River in Russia. They were traveling there for the purpose of raiding and trading, but they did not actually raid in Volga Bulgaria. They came to Volga Bulgaria to trade. They stopped at Volga Bulgaria to resupply and trade, and they happened to stop while Ibn Fadlan was there with a, dipl- with a diplomatic mission as guest of the Volga Bulgar king. That's a lot there to digest. I hope everything made sense. We'll break it down some more, inshallah. All right, so who was Ibn Fadlan? We know almost nothing about his early life and childhood. All we know about him is really what he wrote in his Risala, and he did not really mention much about his childhood in his Risala. We do know that he served as a scribe for an Abbasid general named Muhammad ibn Sulaiman. We also know that Ibn Fadlan was an Islamic scholar. Ibn Fadlan was very well educated. He was educated in both Islamic and natural sciences. He was actually a physician, so he would have been considered a doctor in his time. And he was also familiar with the laws and the legal structure of the Abbasid government of his time. With all of this knowledge, we can also surmise that he was also very politically connected. I mean, he had to be politically connected in order for the caliph to choose him to join the embassy. So we can take all of this, considering that he was well-educated, he was very intelligent, he was politically connected, we can take all this and surmise that he was almost certainly well-off, perhaps even nobility. If not nobility, at the very least, we can assume with great accuracy that Ibn Fadlan was well-respected and well-cultured. Now, it is most likely most probable that he was ethnically Arab, but there's no way to be certain. Everybody spoke Arabic at that time in the Abbasid Caliph, but everyone in the Abbasid Caliphate was not necessarily Arab, but it is highly likely that Ibn Fadlan was Arab, and Allah knows best. Now, we mentioned the Caliph who had selected Ibn Fadlan. We're not going to talk too much about him, but I want to give you a little brief overview of who this Caliph was. The Caliph was Al-Muqtadir. He was the youngest Abbasid ruler. I believe he became ruler at like 17, 16 years old, very young age. Unfortunately for Al-Muqtadir, he wasn't very effective. He wasn't a, a really good Caliph. In fact, the Abbasid decline really began during his reign. That's when most scholars or historians mark the beginning of the Abbasid decline. 
during Al-Muqtadir's reign, the Fatimids, that is the Ismailis, that, well, that's one group of Ismailis over in North Africa, they actually captured Ifriqiya. And if you remember from, well, if you're a part of Islamic History Exclusive, we discussed the province of Ifriqiya, which is really North Africa, which is really what is modern-day Tunisia, Algeria, and parts of Libya. That That is the, um, or was, the uh, province of Ifriqiya for the Umayyad Caliphate and passed on into, into the Abbasid Caliphate as well. Well, anyway, the Abbasids lost it, lost it to the Fatimids, who were Ismailis, during the reign of al-Muqtadir. Another interesting event that took place during the reign of Caliph al-Muqtadir, which has absolutely nothing to do with our discussion on uh, Ibn Fadlan Risala, in 930 CE, the Karamita, or the Karmatians, who were also Ismaili Shias, by the way, invaded Mecca and captured the Black Stone. Interesting story I hope to cover one day, inshallah. But just letting you know around the time frame that Ibn Fadlan existed and when he made this journey. Okay, now on to Ibn Fadlan and his journey. Now we mentioned that his purpose in going on this journey was to teach the, Vulg the Volga Bulgars about Islam who had recently converted to Islam. Now, who are these Volga Bulgars? Well, they start with a group of people called the Bulgars. The Bulgars were a Turkic people who established multiple states in and around the Black Sea in what is now Russia. One group of these Bulgars, these Bulgar people, absorbed the Slavic populations that were nearby them and they eventually became Slavic themselves. The Bulgars, the many different groups of Bulgars in this region around the Black Sea, they had a lot of conflict with another group of people called the Khazars. We'll talk about them soon also. And because of the Khazars encroaching on the Bulgar territory, those Bulgars who had become Slavic or who were in the process of becoming Slavic, they moved westward, mostly to escape the Khazars, they moved westward, eventually settled in the region that we now call Bulgaria, and they were the ancestors of modern Bulgarians. However, there's a whole bunch of other Bulgars who never left. They stayed in the region of the Black Sea despite the conflict with the, with the Khazars. And these Bulgars who stayed in that region around the Black Sea, they eventually established a state called Volga Bulgaria is called Volga because it's close to the Volga River, which flows through Russia. So Volga Bulgaria was a Bulgar state located where the Volga River and the Kama Rivers, both of these are rivers in Russia, meet and come together. Volga Bulgaria existed from around the 7th century to the 13th century CE. Again, their king accepted Islam and he had asked the Abbasid Caliph al-Muqtadir for an instructor and for them to help him and his people learn about Islam. And I want to make it clear that while this most certainly was a sincere request, there may have also been some politics behind it as well. The Volga Bulgar king was currently a vassal of the Khazars, whom once again we're going to talk about soon, inshallah. 
the he was a vassal of the Khazars, and he might have been looking for an ally, particularly the powerful Abbasid Khilafat. Uh, he may have been looking for an ally to help him break free of this bondage or vassalage to the Khazars. Allah knows best. So the caliph, of course, sent this embassy, which included Ibn Fadlan, to, to teach them about Islam. In case you're wondering what happened to Volga Bulgaria after the uh, period with Ibn Fadlan and all, well, eventually the Volga Bulgarians fell victim to the Mongols. They were conquered by the Mongols 300 years later. And eventually, later than that, the Mongols, of course, their huge empire split up and some became Muslim, some became Buddhist, some became other things. The Volga Bulgarians eventually became part of the Muslim part of the broken Mongol empire that we now know of as the Golden Horde. So that's a brief history of the Volga Bulgarians, but we're talking about that period of time where they were a vassal of the Khazars. Now, who were these Khazars? The Khazars were also Turkic people. They had established a, a loose federation called the Khazar Khaganate. This was located in the Caucasus region, also covered parts of Ukraine, parts of Crimea, Russia, and Kazakhstan. The Khazar Khaganate that was giving the Volga Bulgarians so much trouble existed from the year 650 CE to the year 969 CE. And as we mentioned, the conflict between the Khazars and the Bulgars caused the Bulgars to split, one becoming the Bulgarians and another staying put and becoming the Volga Bulgarians. So now we know all about the main characters. There's a few more to go through. Let's get started with Ibn Fadlan's description of this period of time while he was in Volga, Bulgaria, and these Vikings stopped by. So Ibn Fadlan, he's in Volga, Bulgaria, working with the Volga, Bulgar king, working with him to teach Islam, perhaps striking up diplomatic relations between the Abbasids and the Volga, Bulgarians, all knows best. Anyway, while he was there, a group of Vikings stopped by. We're going to talk about these Vikings in just a moment. So let's get Ibn Fadlan's first impression of these Vikings as they docked their ships on the shores of the Volga River and stepped into Volga-Bulgar territory. Needless to say, Ibn Fadlan was struck by their impressive stature. He says, and I quote, I have never seen people with a more developed bodily stature than they. They are as tall as date palms, blonde and ruddy, unquote. Ibn Fadlan also described their weapons and tattoos. He said, quote, Each of them has an axe, a sword, and a knife with him, and all of these whom we have mentioned never let themselves be separated from their weapons. Each one of them has from the tip of his nails to the neck, figures, trees, and other things tattooed in dark green, unquote. Now, these Vikings were Varangians. Varangians were Norsemen from Sweden. They traveled from the Baltic Sea, which is near Sweden and Finland. They traveled from the Baltic Sea, which is in the north near Sweden and Finland, using rivers down to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. As they traveled, they established trading routes with the Byzantines and the Abbasids. So at the time, these Varangians became known as Rus, whom we mentioned in the previous episode. And these Rus, who were really Vikings, they held influence from the Baltic Sea to the Ukraine. The Rus continued to trade and pillage all along these rivers that they traveled along. So sometimes they traded with people and sometimes they just attacked them. 
Over the centuries, they eventually settled down, and one of these Rus established a dynasty. By this time, they were known as the Varangians. So these Vikings went from being called Rus to being called Varangians. One Varangian prince established a dynasty that ruled over a federation called Kievan Rus. And it is from this federation, this Kievan Rus federation, that both Russia and Belarus, both nations, they both trace their ancestry back to this ancient federation called the Kievan Rus. But at this point in time, these were the Vikings that Ibn Fadlan encountered when he was visiting the Volga Bulgarians. This was long before the Kievan Rus came about. But just letting you know that these Vikings that Ibn Fadlan encountered were very likely the great ancestors of the modern Russian people. And Allah knows best. All right, back to the Risala. Ibn Fadlan then goes on to describe the jewelry that the Varangian women wore. I'm going to go back and forth between the words Varangian and Viking. Just bear with me. But when I say Varangian, I mean these particular Vikings. When I say Vikings, I'm talking about these particular Varangians. I think that's pretty straightforward. Anyway, so Ibn Fadlan goes on to describe the jewelry that the Varangian women wore. He said, quote, Each of the women has fastened upon the two breasts a brooch of iron, silver, copper, or gold, in weight and value according to the wealth of her husband. The man, if he possesses 10,000 dirhams, has a neck ring made for his wife. If he has 20,000 in his possession, then he has two neck rings made for her. And so his wife receives another neck ring with the addition of each 10,000 dirhams. Accordingly, it often happens that there are a number of neck rings upon the neck of one of them. Unquote. Now, despite these positive descriptions that Ibn Fadlan is giving us, he was obviously very turned off and revolted and repulsed by the Viking hygiene. Let's listen, let's listen to what he says. Quote, They are the dirtiest creatures of God. They have no shame in voiding their bowels and bladder, nor do they wash themselves when polluted by emission of semen, nor do they wash their hands after eating. They are then like asses who have gone astray. Unquote. He then goes on to describe the lack of shame and decency when it comes to intercourse. And this is why I said you may want to cover your kids' ears or maybe not have them listen to them. It's not very graphic, but it may not be for young kids. I'll put it like that. Ibn Fadlan says, and I quote, Each of them has a couch whereupon he sits, and with them are fair maidens who are destined for sale to the merchants, and they may have intercourse with their girl while their comrades look on. At times, a crowd of them may come together, and one does this in the presence of the others. It also happens that a merchant who comes into the house to buy a girl from one of them may find him in the very act of having intercourse with her, and he will not let her be until he has fulfilled his intention. Unquote. Ibn Fadlan has a lot more to say. He then goes on to describe how they wash themselves in the morning, and this part is particularly disgusting. I wish I could be more objective, but it's kind of hard to be. Quote, A slave girl brings each morning early a large vessel with water and gives the vessel to her master, and he washes his hands and face and the hair of his head. He washes it and combs it with a comb into the bucket, then blows his nose and spits into the bucket. He holds back nothing impure, but rather lets it go into the water. 
After he has done what was necessary, the girl takes the same vessel to the one who is nearest, and he does just as his neighbor had done. She carries the vessel from one to another until all in the house have had a turn at it, and each one of them has blown his nose, spat into, and washed his face and hair in the vessel. Unquote. The Vikings had some, uh, some hygiene issues, especially for us as Muslims. We know how particular, how particular Islam is about hygiene. Good Lord, I mean... Wudu five times a day, Rusul at least once a week for Juma. You have to have Rusul uh, after relations with your spouse. All these things that Islam has, brushing the teeth and cutting fingernails and clipping pubic hairs. It's, Islam is very particular about the hygiene. And so you can imagine how disturbed or how uncomfortable Ibn Fadlan might have been to witness the Vikings doing these things. But... It is what it is. We're just, we're just relating the story. So Ibn Fadlan also witnessed their religious practices. Now these Varangians, these Vikings, had not converted to Christianity as yet. So he goes on to describe how they had wooden poles with faces carved into them that they had stuck into the ground. And around these wooden poles were small images and one large image. Now I take these images, they may have either been statues or they may have been objects like stones or plates or bowls or something like that that had small images drawn or painted on them. Anyway, the Vikings would offer these idols bread, meat, milk, and other foods, and then they prayed to the idols for good fortune in their trading ventures for that day. Remember, the Vikings were mostly traders and merchants when they weren't raiding and pillaging. They were trading and buying and selling stuff. So if things did not go well for the Viking, if his, if his business did not go well that day, then he'd come back the next day with more offerings and more prayers to the idols. And he would continue to do this until his fortunes eventually turned for the better. And when that happened, he would make a large sacrificial offering to the idols. And Ibn Fadlan has something to say about that as well. He said, quote, He gathers a number of sheep and oxen, slaughters them, gives away a part of the meat as charity, and brings the remainder and casts it before that great wooden image and before the little wooden images which stand around it. He hangs the head of the cattle or those of the sheep on the poles which are erected in the earth. In the night, the dogs come and devour all, and he who has made this sacrifice says, Verily my Lord is content with me, and he has eaten my gift. Unquote. So then Ibn Fadlan goes on to describe what happens when a Viking gets sick. When a Viking gets sick, according to Ibn Fadlan, I'm going to summarize this part, they're kept in a tent away from everyone else. Ibn Fadlan says that bread and water is placed by the tent, but no one cares for the sick person or goes to visit him. They're just left in the tent to recover on their own. Now this is especially true if the sick person was poor or a slave, they're pretty much on their own. If the sick person eventually recovers, then he will leave the tent and go, goes back to join the rest of the group. But if he dies, he was cremated. But if he was a slave and he died, then he's just left alone and he was eaten by the dogs and wild animals. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the Viking tradition of burning their dead in ships. It's a common trope about Vikings. And Ibn Fadlan witnessed one of these funerals and cremations, and he provided extensive detail on it. 
However, we are going to have to discuss that the next time, inshallah. I'm fasting and I can't drink water and it's kind of hard to go for more than half an hour of talking without having some water or something. So inshallah, we will continue the discussion of Ibn Fadlan's Risala in the next episode. We're going to talk about this Viking cremation and funeral story. It is very interesting. I hope you'll be here inshallah when we continue the story in the next episode. But brothers and sisters, we're going to have to cut it short here. Next episode, we'll continue Ibn Fadlan's Risala. But until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.